0: You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world. Here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, episode number three. I am elated so many are joining us. Keep it coming, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, anybody you like, bring them along. If you don't like them, bring them along, they'll like you doing this. Okay, we left off last time by telling the story of uh, our horse races, all because Baron Moshe Hirsch, Maurice Hirsch, was a very benevolent man, and even his horses, he donated their proceeds to charity. So it seemed to be a very logical idea for Herzl, who needed to fund the Zionist cause to turn an appeal to Baron Hirsch. He went to Baron Hirsch, but one winning horse that Baron Hirsch did not put his money on was Herzl and the Zionist cause. He thought that Herzl's idea was a fantasy and Jews would never su- su- succeed in living in the state of Israel. He co- and he did not support the Zionist cause. Herzl saw that after Baron Hirsch denied him, he did not have an adequate comeback. And therefore, he left that meeting feeling, feeling very disappointed, disenchanted, crestfallen, and melancholy, and he knew that he's going to have to do better. He was determined to do better. So he decided he's going to compose his thoughts to writing, and because his next meeting was a very important meeting with Baron Rothschild. He wrote notes about what he thought should be done, and those notes become the basis of Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state. It's a book of approximately 100 pages that made Herzl's name a household term throughout the Jewish world. The book was printed, translated, read more widely than any other Jewish book in the modern era, turned Herzl's long voice into the leader of an international movement. Jews, he claimed, not only practice a religion, we not only a nation, but a nation requires a state of their own. The Jewish state became one of the most influential books in history. It puts forth that if Jews gather together in our very own lifetime, we can rebuild a Jewish state. And thus, it's not the idea of a wild-eyed zealot with fire in the belly, but it's a rational, cogent idea. People required a state of their own, and they could actually pull it off. The book was published in 1896 and created political Zionism. The book, as we said, is not the book of one of a fire-in-the-eye zealot. Cogent solutions, working together, and this book caught wildfire among Jews and even among non-Jews. Let's just pause for a moment to digest a very important lesson for any believing individual. It has to be the Weltanschauung of an individual to understand that what God does for us is for our benefit. Sometimes we understand, and many a time we do not. But we have to believe that God cares for us, and then, therefore, what occurs to us is only for our benefit. Sometimes things could be terrible, even catastrophic, but in our heart of hearts to understand, it's a blessing in disguise. We don't know why God is frustrating us and making us suffer, uh, but we believe that God is doing for our very best interests. For example, a couple is dating, and things are really progressing, and the girl has his, her heart on this fellow, and she already imagines herself being married to this fellow. But a few weeks later, as it's coming to the home stretch, he nixes it, and her world goes black. She wonders, will the sun ever shine again? And she only learns about half a year later, when she meets a fellow who's far better for her, more intelligent and kind, that by not getting engaged to the previous person, was the best thing in the world that could have happened to her. Or couple is looking for the dream house, and they finally locate the dream house after all that searching and hunting. They go to the closing. They can't wait. They've already told everyone, and at the closing, the seller pulls out. Urgh! Frustration, irritation, but half a year later, I-yi-yi-yi-yi, it ends up they find a the house and a better neighborhood for less money, which is more spacious, and what they thought was a catastrophe was for their benefit. It's a lesson we have to internalize. Now, I could give you many examples of this, but I just want to highlight one of them. Uh, let me make the connection one more time. When Herzl went to that meeting with Baron Hirsch, how do you think he felt when he walked out empty-handed, and for all his efforts, not a penny? But he's determined to do better, and what happened was he then met Baron Rothschild. We're going now to April 1944. Alfred Wetzler and Rudolf Verber Rosenberg, two Slovakian Jews, are interred in the Auschwitz death camp. They are there from the beginning. As a rule, people did not, certainly Jews, did not survive in Auschwitz. Because in Auschwitz, if you'd be a homosexual, a communist, a political prisoner, with luck, you could survive. For a Jew, the end was always destruction. It didn't mattered only how long it would take. But as a rule for almost everyone, every Jew who came to Auschwitz, in a matter of minutes or hours, you were finished and part of smoke. But Verber and Wexler were there from the very beginning and they were the super, super veterans. They have been every aspect of the camp. Now, mind you, Auschwitz is a factory of death as far as the eye can see, one kilometer by nearly half a kilometer. It's a sprawling complex, hard to say sprawling about what is called so accurately a concentration camp. But within Auschwitz, there are over 40 death camps and concentration camps, and they were in every single department. And they concluded, Since they know every single aspect of Auschwitz, they have to escape to alert the world. Now, I'm sure everyone who ever came to Auschwitz wished to escape, but they wanted to escape not for themselves, but to alert the world and save other people that should be spared their fate. But how in the world can you escape from the most guarded place on earth? They came to the following conclusion. Because of other people who tried to escape, they realized that Auschwitz had an outer security ring, which was electrical barbed wire fence. And then past that was one more border where there were towers and guards, but the fence was not electrified. So they figured if they could somehow be between the electrical barbed wire fence and the outer fence, then perhaps they could escape. How? Because if someone escaped, because every day there was an appell. Appell means the roll call. This was monotonous torture. Where the prisoners were forced to line up, it could be in the freezing cold, monotonously calling out their numbers again and again and again for hours. In the freezing cold, standing on their feet, we have records from Auschwitz that where Auschwitz, the appell, lasted over 16 hours. 11 hours was not always unusual. Or in the summer, also Poland is two diametrical opposites freezing cold, boiling heat in the summer. Also, it's no picnic standing on your feet for hours calling out your name. So in the morning, all the prisoners went out to work in the different slave labor camps. And at night, there was the appel the roll call to see that the numbers matched. If anybody was missing, now, if people died and they died industrially, so all the dead had to come to the appel as well and they would schlep hundreds and hundreds of bodies. But if the match didn't be precise, and let's not forget, we're talking about Germans who are very, very much into their precision, Then if someone didn't match the number, then they would call an alarm and the guards in the outer perimeter, normally after the night appell after the roll call, they would turn off the lights and ashes would be shut for the day, for the night. But if the numbers didn't match, then there'd be a three-day intensive search. Thousands of SS troops and 200 dogs would be hunting all over. So Verbe and Wexler's plan was they would hide in between those two places. And if three days pass, then they wouldn't be looking for them anymore. How could they pull this off? So what happened was, in preparation for the destruction of 825,000 Hungarian Jews that were to be incinerated in Auschwitz, they brought in planks of wood to create barracks for those Jews that would not be murdered immediately and be sent as slaves to work in the slave camps associated with Auschwitz. So the underground in Auschwitz created a cavity within these planks of wood where Verba and Wexler could hide. And what they learned from a Russian POW is that if you take stiff Russian tobacco and douse it in petroleum or gasoline, its whiff can throw off the scent of dogs. Dogs, as you know, especially if you have a dog, dogs are a nose on four feet. That's why you take a delicious bright yellow tennis ball and you throw it in a park, the dog will step right over the tennis ball and sniff a dead squirrel. So this way they're going to mislead the dogs, and hide, and and the soldiers will not find them. It was quite a plan. So, on April 1944, April 7th, if I'm not mistaken, April 7th, 1944, Werber and Wexler go into this cavity where they're going to hide for three days. At night, they see that the numbers don't match, two are missing, they sound the alarm. The guards stay in the guard post, the lights stay on, and there's a massive search, a massive manhunt throughout all of Auschwitz, going everywhere. Thousands of SS troops and dogs, they go right over the cavity where Verber and Wexler are hiding. They don't detect them. One day, and two days, and two and a half days. And now they're just counting the hours. At this point, they know that the search basically is a formality. They're not expecting to find them. In just a few more hours, they'll be free. They'll be able to get out and then climb to their freedom and alert the world. About three or four hours before the final countdown, they hear two Germans outside say, hey, we never checked this pile. Now on top of them were three piles of lumber, each one and a half feet. So it was altogether four and a half feet. They lift off the first pile and the nerves of Verba and Wexler are jumping through their skin. They got this close and now they know the Nazis will come, they will torture them and have them publicly hanged. They take off the second plank of wood. And it's just now a matter of minutes left. And then these two Germans got distracted, and they ran away. They wait till they get the oil clear, and they can now slip out and climb under the fence. So with all their energy, they push up on top of the wood, but being atrophied. And before going into the cavity, they were on sub-starvation diet. They haven't eaten. So they push and they push and they can't lift up the wood. This was the lowest moment. Up until then had been exquisite torture, but now to know that they'll die of starvation or they'll be found and tortured and hanged. But with every ounce of strength, they push higher and higher and higher, one inch, one and a half inch, two inches, three and a half inches, and finally they clear it. They climb out and they feel ants running through their veins they managed to crawl underneath the outer fence, and they had gotten a map from an atlas that a girl had brought to Auschwitz, and in the warehouse they saw this atlas, and they knew they had to follow the route of the Sola River. That will bring them to Slovakia. They're walking, walking, following the Solar River. Twice they're intercepted by friendly people who feed them. They make it to Slovakia, and the Jewish underground interviews them, two separately, different rooms, for three days. Their stories totally match with so much information, that becomes what's called the Auschwitz Protocol. This information is sent to the West, to London, and to Washington. Washington sits on it for a very long time, but finally releases it. And with this information, they send a very stern warning to Admiral Horthy, the regent, the one in charge of Hungarian government. Now everyone knows in 1944, the Allies are going to win the war. And they won Horthy. If you continue deportations, you're going to pay a very severe price after the war. Horthy stopped the deportations, and it's estimated up to 200,000 Jewish lives were saved thanks to the Auschwitz Protocol. So think about this. These two Jews, Vexler and Verbo Rosenberg, thought that their lives were finished. And then when they saw the Germans pulling off the wood, they cursed the Germans, they cursed the world, they cursed the Lord, because now their lives are over. it was thanks to them taking off this wood, they had the wherewithal to lift themselves out to freedom and alert the world and saved at least 200,000 and who knows how many, perhaps millions this is, these people are today. Whenever two Jews live in the same neighborhood, same hood, or you have two roommates in college, you never know what groups they're going to get together, what startups will result, and what's going to happen as a consequence of the meeting. We know that Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, and Theodor Herzl, the father of political Zionism, lived on the same street in Vienna for two years. We have no evidence that they ever met, but if they would have met, it's not hard to imagine what would have happened. Freud would have tried to convince Herzl to abandon his dreams, and Herzl would have tried to convince Freud that his dreams will become the reality. Had this happened, we may have resulted with no Jewish state and no psychoanalysis. All the while, going back to where we were before, Dreyfus is languishing in Devil's Island, the Caribbean. Then in 1896, there's a new head of the French intelligence who decides to take a look at the Bordeaux, at that memo that was sent to the, that was written to a German attaché. He takes a look at that memo and other letters that were written to the attaché and he sees that one was written by a French artillery officer named Esterhazy. And the handwriting matched precisely it's exactly identical handwriting. He brings to the attention of the minister of the, of the war, who says, don't bother me with this. The case is over, Dreyfus got what he deserved, and just to be sure, he had this minister, new minister of intelligence transferred to Tunisia. But before he left, the information was leaked. And now that there's reason to suspect that Dreyfus is not guilty, and that Esterhazy is the one who actually did this, a banker who was owed a lot of money from Esterhazy produced documents written by Estrahazi and they saw that the handwriting matched precisely. Then Esterhazy's former mistress had letters written by Esterhazy, and that handwriting also matched. So it's really a slam dunk proof that Esterhazy is the guilty party. However, like we've said already, when you hate someone, you can describe what they do in inhuman and even in anti-human terms. So now, because of all this damning evidence, Esterhazy's brought to court. And he's found innocent. Evidence is in front of them. Yet they refuse to believe that anyone but Dreyfus the Jew could have been guilty of spying on behalf of Germany. But because of this, all this damning evidence, a very well-known French author named Emil Zola was so disgusted by this perversion of justice, he wrote a full-page piece in a French newspaper called Jacuz. I accused. And the article went off like a bomb throughout France, embarrassing France throughout the international community. And then France is torn asunder into two groups. The left are called the Dreyfusards, the right are called the anti-Dreyfusards. And the right publish documents of anti-Semitism and Jewish conspiracies, basing themselves primarily on the protocols of the Elders of Zion. We have to devote a few words about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It's a very important entry into the old debate of what is more mighty, the sword or the pen. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was written in Russia in 1903, was clearly proven countless times to be a forgery. And any Jew would know that it's impossible to get all Jews together, that they're going to make a conspiracy against the world. You put Jews, two Jews together you get three opinions. It can't be all Jews come together and they have one thought. That'll never happen. Only an anti-Semite could dream of this. So they plan a catastrophe for the world that will benefit Jewish finances. They idea is so fantastic that, again, only an anti-Semite could believe it. But it finds a very strong audience throughout the world, particularly in America. Henry Ford, the very famous father of the assembly line, finances the printing of half a million copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In the old Yad Vashem, I'm a senior docent in Yad Vashem, I'm a tour guide in the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem called Yad Vashem. In the old Yad Vashem, there is a uh, display of a folded Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and what it came from was the glove compartment of a Ford car. If you bought a car, you would get, for no extra charge, inside the glove compartment the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And what are you buying in America? There wasn't Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, Hyundai, Mazda, Honda, Nissan. All there was Ford, 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 and everyone's cars. So what happens is is Henry Ford prints 500,000 copies of the Protocols of Ellers Design. He has it distributed. He puts it in his cars. He puts it in his distributorships. And he buys the local newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. And he has the protocols that the elders of Zion printed in the newspaper as if it's a fact. Whoever will read the newspaper thinks they're reading the news, that the Jews are trying to control the globe with their clever finances. But Ford did not just suffice with doing that. He then has 91 series written about the evil of the Jews and how they're going to curtail America because of their scheming. As one of the most famous individuals in America, what Henry Ford said was listened to. He legitimized ideas that were illegitimate any marginalized people that should not have been marginalized. And his ally is Adolf Hitler at the very same time in Germany. So this will conclude our episode for today. I want to thank everyone for joining, and please subscribe, share, get others to like, and get as all your people to join us as we continue teaching our series. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all teleproducts, Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget. You can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. Please see our YouTube channel for a richer-than-just audio experience with spiffy visual components and elements also accessible from the Teller from Jerusalem website where the list of general and specific credits are listed.